Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. No, we're not going to pull a Peter Falk and read to you on this week's show. But we are going to talk about books, Josh. Film writer Kristen Lopez joins us to talk about her new book, which is about some of the most revered page-to-screen adaptations. And we'll share the top five books we'd like to see adapted into movies. It's all ahead. She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time, Adam. On Film Spotting. I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Welcome to Film Spotting. Finally, Film Spotting becomes the college seminar I always wanted it to be, talking books with fellow English majors. I, I see you've even brought the pipes and the smoking jackets. Thank you. Very yep. thoughtful. Yeah. No, I, I actually went tweed and uh huh. it's even got the, the patches on the arms. Of course it does. Later in the show. This one's definitely an elective here at Film Spotting University. We call it Film Spotting Madness. Best of the 60s this semester. We've got Sweet 16 results and our Elite 8 matchups. Elite 8 voting, we remind you, is open now at filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness you have until 11 a.m on monday march 27th if you haven't been playing along up until now go ahead jump into the fray why not there's only four matchups to vote on eight amazing films and you have to pick between them but why not filmspottingmadness.com let's get to our guest josh who is definitely going to shame us in the reading department Kristen Lopez is film editor at The Wrap. She's the author of the new book, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films, which is available now. And she brought along her master's in English from the California State University at Sacramento to prove her bona fides. Welcome, Kristen, to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Good to have you, Kristen. Now, I already knew your bona fides because... If I recall correctly, a while back, we were playing trivia spotting, and one of my few chances at glory, I think it came down to a tiebreaker to win it all. It was a question about Shakespeare, and you beat me, and you won. I mean, it's it kind of a requirement. If I do not uh, get to flash my Shakespeare knowledge can I call myself a master of English? I, I don't know. So <laughs> exactly. I really had no choice in the matter. <laughs> no mercy. I don't think we're going to have any Shakespeare talk on this episode, but we'll see. You're going to play along with our shenanigans, which has us choosing the top five books we'd like to see adapted into films. But first, we do want to talk a little bit about your book. I'm curious first what the impetus was 
besides obviously your background with English literature, is this a book idea you always had in mind or were you approached? Yeah. So I had a coworker who had written a book for TCM and I just kind of asked him, what's the process there? I assumed it was a very convoluted book process. Uh, and he said, oh, well, let me introduce you to the person that that runs the publishing arm. And I talked to him, uh, the great John Malahide, and we talked a lot about a lot of different things, uh, none of which were this book. Uh, and he said, oh, well, you know, come back to you and see if we, there's a way we can work together. And they did. They had a bunch of ideas that had already been greenlit, and they were just looking for an, an author. And they said, well, we looked at your your uh, resume, and we see you have a master's degree in English. Do you read a lot? And I had to laugh because, as we know, it's kind of a requirement uh, in order for, for you to, uh, to be a master of English. You have to read a lot. Uh, and then they started describing this book that they wanted to write about film adaptations. And I was really intrigued because... I am a person that is incredibly impatient. Uh, you know, if, if a movie gets greenlit with somebody that I love, I cannot wait the year or two years that it takes for this movie to come to fruition if it ever does. Uh, so I will immediately go out and read the book uh, as soon as I know that it, it's a thing that exists. Uh, so, so when they said, you know, do you want do you want to write about film adaptations? I was like, I've already been, I have opinions. I already know some stuff. Like, I'm ready for this. I love to hear, Kristen, that the Masters in English had such a direct payoff. You know, it's that's incredibly encouraging for <laughs> young students who are considering that and might hear, might hear otherwise from certain circles. So love that story. Let me ask you about the process of the book, which I enjoyed reading quite a bit. Congratulations on getting it out into the world. I'm sure you came in once you had the assignment with, I don't know, 10, 20 books that you wanted to write about, 10, 20 movies that you wanted to write about immediately and had a good sense of what you wanted to say. But I found in projects like this, it's often the surprise in the process that is the most exciting part about writing the book. So I'm curious if there is either way, go either direction or maybe both if you have both, but was there a book that you came away from this with a greater appreciation for it than you held before, and maybe it was something you read for the first time, or was there a movie that you had a similar experience thinking, if I had not written this book, I would not feel quite as passionately about this movie? Does a title in either direction come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of uh, books that I had never read before, a couple of movies that I had never seen before. So, I think that one of the movies that I came away with a bigger appreciation of having never seen it is uh, Blade Runner. Uh, I had never seen Blade Runner until last, till, till the year I wrote this. And I had read, uh, it was not the Philip K. Dick book I wanted to use. I wanted to initially include uh, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is what they based mm. Total Recall on. And I found out that was a novella, so technically it didn't count. And uh, it couldn't include it. So... It's like, fine, I guess I'll do Blade Runner. Uh, I never watched it. I'd seen Blade Runner 2049 and I hated it. So I was like, well, this is not going to be fun for me. Uh, and and actually watching the movie, having read the book, I think the book is fascinating, but I think the movie does a better job of encapsulating a lot of, of Dick's themes. Uh, it's a very interesting, you know, no, uh, like film noir, sci-fi, you know, genre uh, mashup. And as somebody 
who loves Rutger Hauer and Lady Hawk, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a very interesting, very different role for him. So I don't, I, I do think that I, I would not have appreciated the movie had I not read the book alongside it. As far as a book that I came away with a, a deeper appreciation for, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I had not hmm. read To Kill a Mockingbird since high school, probably middle school, maybe. I don't even remember. I knew I read it in school. And to watch the movie, the movie's gorgeous. I mean, it's it's a classic. It's a masterpiece for a reason. But Harper Lee's book, I think, is unfortunately aged even better than the movie in some ways. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion about what we now would call microaggressions and white privilege. You know, she really does have Scout go through a lot of these things that now we look at, you know, like the, the book has this whole added layer of Scout trying to look at her own whiteness in this world and how she is part of the problem, which is not at all included in the, the film. Um, so I, I definitely came to appreciate what Harper Lee was was writing because she wouldn't have even known that that's what we would be talking about in you know the 2020s. Interesting. That's great. As we said, the subtitle is 52 literary gems that inspired our favorite films. So one for every week of the year. How did you even go about deciding which films would make the cut, whittling them down to even a robust 52. Yeah, I love that everybody asked me if I intended to do a movie and book a week for a year. I wish I was that smart. Uh, it was mostly like, they, initially they, were, they knew they wanted between 40 and, and 100 titles. Uh, I knew that I had a very short window in which to write the book. Um, so I knew I needed stuff that I could either knew well enough that I didn't necessarily have to do a close reading, um, Stuff had to be short, so I think the longest books in here are Valley of the Dolls and The Shining. So I gave myself a lot of parameters, but TCM also wanted a diversity of authors and genres and eras. The one film and book they wanted was Dune, because that was what was coming out at the, end, at the original time when we were going to publish this. Um, so I initially gave them, I think, a, a long list of like 75 things that was just kind of like stuff. some stuff I knew would not get in included in the the book you know the book isn't popular the movie wasn't a success so it's only something that Kristen likes um so I knew that eventually some of the stuff would be would be cut um and we just went back and forth you know how easy is the book to access you know is it widely available is it out of print if it wasn't that got you know cut out um and eventually I, I still like I'm kicking myself at some of the stuff that I didn't include um, but eventually we just kind of went back and forth and came up with, with the ones where I was like, okay, if, if we're going to try to get people to read, which is the goal of the book, you know, I think these are the, the books that people would have the most fun reading. It sounds like you already have weighed in on the question I had for you at the start of this, which was, do you like to wait to watch the movie first? Or do you read the book first? This is something Josh and I debate here on the show. And obviously, you have no problem diving into the book first. It, no, no. It depends on how long, you know, like if I got lead time, you know, like if like, mm -hmm. it, like um, I'm just going to I'm going to use any recent example. Nosferatu. They're they're doing Nosferatu. I'm like, OK, it's been a while since I've read Dracula. But I'm going to have to wait two years or however long that's going to take. So I'm probably going to start rereading it now just so I can prep. Um. You know, something like Bullet Train I read after I saw the movie because I was like, I just, I need a, I'm a completist, so I need to know, like, what, what is different. Uh, and I think I, 
even then I yeah I think I like saw the movie at like a press screening then I read the book and then I saw the movie again uh so like I was really kind of in between so it depends on it depends on access uh like how long do yeah. I have to wait Okay, well, it's you know good not to be dogmatic about too many things in life, Kristen. I appreciate it. So <laughs> the last thing I want to know before we jump into the top five is whether or not you were able, over the course of doing all this research and writing, to come up with sort of a grand unifying theory, as our producer Sam puts it, or a set of criteria as to what determines whether or not a film adaptation will be successful. Yeah, you know, it's tough because... There's a quote from W.S. Van Dyke who directed the Thin Man movies, and it's in the book. And he, when he gave the original Dashiell Hammett novel to the uh, screenwriters for the first Thin Man, he said, use the book as a foundation, not a guide. And I think that that's numerable, though, the thing that makes a successful adaptation is that, you know, if you can, if you're including the beats that somebody expects when they're summing up a, a title, you know, you don't have to do verbatim, you know, exactly what is laid out. You know, some stuff's just not going to work on the in celluloid like it does on the page. You know, you're going to have to alter some stuff. As long as the same spirit is there uh, of what people love about the book, you know, you're in good company. I, I've been fortunate to interview Richard Legravenese recently who adapted Bridges of Madison County and, and Beautiful Creatures. And you know, he talked about how the hardest part of it, uh, adapting a text is that you're pleasing two totally different audiences. People that have read the book and people who have never heard of the story and just been looking for a good movie. And how do you please two audiences that might be completely different? Uh, and, and a lot of that for him was, you know, taking the stuff that he loved from the book and fixing some of the things that he thought needed to be fixed. He's all, now the problem is, is at least in the case of Beautiful Creatures, people who read the book did not like what he changed in order to make it palatable for a film audience. But the film audiences that liked it really liked what he did. Um, you know, so he's like, you have to take the victories, you know, you, you have to determine whether that's a victory or not. That, you know, a, a new audience of people have discovered this text that might not have. So it's tough. It's tough to, you know really show what makes a successful adaptation but i think it all starts with finding out what you love about the novel and hoping to retain that for the film so let's now play studio heads all of us individually we're going to get to take some of our favorite literary works and turn them in to movies and we'll see how far all of us went in terms of even coming up with potential directors to attach dream directors or dream cast members i've got a director and star for each of mine I was able to come up with, and I'm eager to see where we all landed. I will also note that I posed this question on Twitter just about a week ago as we're recording. You can green light any book, make it into a movie. What would it be? Ton of great responses. So many that we're not going to be able to cover them here. I will link to that Twitter thread over in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you want to see some of the titles that came up. There were some titles that were recurring too, and they, I'll have to confess, were titles I wasn't familiar with, but I haven't been a regular reader probably since I was an English major, sadly, a while back. Been focusing too much on movies here on Film Spotting. Kristen, you're our guest. We want to hear your number five pick, book that you'd love to see adapted into a movie. I was going to say, come back to me, because I have a solid one through three, and I'm going back and forth on two more for a four and a five. 
Okay. <laughs> Josh, do the honors, please. Start of course. Off, you're number five. Yeah, I love it. Uh, settle on that, Kristen. Make sure you make the right choice. <laughs> My number five is going to be, well, it'll be a bit of a confession. When you live with a librarian, You'd be a fool not to consult her for this list. So my first pick, my number five is going to be a book I haven't read yet, but it comes highly recommended from a source that I do trust. I told Debbie about our little project here and said, I've got to include a pick from yours. She reads much more than me, just devours books. I'm shamed by her constantly, her reading speed. But recently she finished Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayborn. So this was just published last year, and it puts in age and a gender spin on a familiar espionage narrative. Here are four assassins who've been working for this clandestine operation their entire lives. They suddenly find out that, yes, they're the targets. Now, in this case, the four assassins are women who have recently turned 60 and, in fact, were set to retire. So... According to Debbie, it's a thriller mostly, also very funny. She pretty much said the the BuzzFeed review of it is accurate. BuzzFeed calls it Golden Girls meets James Bond. Now, as for a potential cast, I had to lean on Debbie as well. She said Helen Mirren came to mind. And I think, honestly, I think Helen Mirren should take this as a compliment. Looked up her age. She's actually 77. So being thought of as 60 and cast to play 60, pretty good for her as well. The director, I'm going to say, let's give this one to Ryan Johnson. I think he'd have fun with it. And the story, as it was being described to me, seems to have a little bit of a poker face vibe. In fact, if you watch that series, think of the Year of the Monkey episode with the two nefarious older women in the retirement community. I kind of like that sensibility being brought to this material. Now, I should note Lucky McKee actually directed that episode in the Ryan Johnson series, but I'm bringing in Johnson for this, for Killers of a Certain Age. Again, the author of that book is Deanna Rayborn. Now, it sounds like a brilliant choice, but the only way that's allowable, Josh, is if you pull Debbie into the closet and she made the pick on the show. <laughs> she's next. Ironically, she's working at the library right now, oh, so <laughs> it's, it's not possible. It's, she's on shift. <laughs> All right. I'll go next with my number five. You know, someone who hasn't had enough of his books adapted into movies, Stephen King. (laughs) I'm going with one of the few, The Eyes of the Dragon. This is a fantasy book that was first purchased back in the late 1990s, sat in development hell, the rights lapsed. Sci-Fi Channel came along, I think, around 2012 or just before that. They were going to make it into a film or miniseries. The rights lapsed there. And around 2019, Hulu beat out Apple in an auction for the rights. I think they're still sitting on them, but a planned project that was going to be helmed, the showrunner was going to be the producer of It, Seth Graham Smith. He has now confirmed fairly recently that that's out that Eyes of the Dragon will no longer be coming to Hulu as a TV series. And here's a little bit from the Mary Sue about this. Among King's pre-1990 books that were first published under his own name, it's one of his only fantasy titles, along with the Talisman and the Dark Tower books, that haven't yet been adapted, though all have been in development at one point or another prior to 2017. I reference that because if we were doing the show prior to 2017— 
The Dark Tower would have been maybe my number one from Stephen King. And maybe I could still use it as a choice here, guys, because I just like to pretend that the 2017 film of The Gunslinger never happened, despite the fact that they cast Idris Elba as The Gunslinger and Matthew McConaughey as The Man in Black. Like, you tell me that. I don't need to come up with my own fantasy casting. I'm all in. Unfortunately, the film was just awful. The Eyes of the Dragon is a, or was, a huge departure for King at the time. As I said, one of his early books, he was really known as that horror master. I think it was his first foray into fantasy. The story goes that he wrote it for his daughter, Naomi, who was young at the time, and she wasn't into horror and didn't want to read his stories. So he wrote a book in a genre that she did appreciate and that she could read. I'll give you just a little bit of the plot description here. A tale of archetypal heroes and sweeping adventures of dragons and princes and evil wizards. Here is epic fantasy as only Stephen King could envision it. A kingdom is in turmoil as the old King Roland dies and its worthy successor, Prince Peter, must do battle to claim what is rightfully his. Plotting against him is the evil flag and his pawn, young Prince Thomas. Yet with every plan, there are holes, like Thomas's terrible secret, and the determined Prince Peter who is planning a daring escape from his imprisonment. Wizards, dragons, princes, there, there isn't a market for the eyes of the dragon. I just can't believe it. So who is going to star in this thing? This character, the, the evil wizard flag, is someone who has appeared in like nine or 10 of Stephen King's stories. He's a recurring character in different forms. I found one website, Josh, that described him as like the ultimate villain of the King multiverse. And he appears first, I think, in The Stand. And he's described as a tall man of no age in old blue jeans, a denim jacket, and old cowboy boots. And then in Eyes of the Dragon, he shows up as a thin and stern-faced man of about 50 Despite being much older, he hides himself under a dark cloak, and most of his magic comes from spells, potions, and poisons. So in my head, I immediately go like Voldemorty, you know, like <laughs> Ray Fiennes-ish, maybe Mark Rylance, some other British guy or a European actor, maybe a Mads Mikkelsen. I'm going to go against type. I'm going to cast an actor in this role as this ultimate evil villain. I'm going to cast an actor who just exudes empathy and warmth and everything that's right with the world. And that's Keanu Reeves. I know he's John Wick, and he's, he's a baddie there, or he's a, a badass, but he's not a bad guy. Remember what launched this whole revenge tale was his dog dying, and, of course, a lot of time devoted to losing his wife. So Keanu Reeves, and then here's my director that I'm going to get terrible emails about and social media comments, because it's a terrible idea. Celine Siama. No, don't take another I know, talent. I know. That's why. That's why. That's why it's a terrible idea, Josh. I'm admitting it's terrible because we don't all want someone as pure and amazing as Celine Siama venturing into this IP territory and producing other people's material versus her personal visions. And also, flag, two princes, three kings. It's a lot of dudes. What's why are we putting her into that? But there are also three queens. And what I want is some humanity. And I want an emphasis on character, not spectacle. And we saw with Petite Mama that she's got a really deft hand at handling fantasy, albeit on a much, much smaller scale. So Eyes of the Dragon, Celine Siama, Keanu Reeves. Can't greenlight that one, Adam, with the Siama. Well, no. let's bring Debbie in. I bet she will. <laughs> Kristen, we'd love to hear your number five choice. 
Yeah, so it took it took me scouring through my Goodreads because I read a lot of books. Uh, so the problem was is like, what have I read lately uh, that sticks out in my mind? Um, so thankfully, I found an abundance of things. Uh, so very very happy there. Uh, so my number five, uh, I read a lot of nonfiction, uh, which is good. You know, we we all love true stories. True crime is a huge thing right now. Uh, so my number five is uh, Hallie Rubenhold's The Five, which is about the five women killed by Jack the Ripper. Uh, but it's not interested in telling the Jack the Ripper story. It's interested in discussing the lives of the women that were killed um, because there's this pervasive belief that they were all just sex workers. Um, and that is actually not true. And as the book unfolds, you know, and, and details each of these women's lives, it shows pretty much this sad, sordid history of the England of the time where a lot of women were raising children that they couldn't afford and had no no social safety nets. And, you know, really, there's only like one that actually has been proven to be a sex worker. So why do all of these rumors persist? that Jack the Ripper exclusively, uh, you know, looked for sex workers. If anything, he just targeted poor women. Um, so I think that there is something very interesting. You know, we just had a movie come out about the Boston Strangler told from the women who reported the story. Um, okay. Uh, but but I think that it, it would be more interesting to tell a true crime story about the victims in a way that is giving them humanity and is fascinating and really does tend to critique the fact that we tend to demonize uh, women for um, even if they're murdered. Um, so for me, I think like a director that I think of would be really interesting is is and he's controversial for some reasons. I get it. Uh, but Craig Gillespie, who did uh, Pam and Tommy, uh, if, if there's anybody that I think is kind of associated with the, the cultural reevaluation of women, you know, something we saw with like I, Tanya. Uh, this would be a very different genre, but I think it would be really interesting, uh, especially if you get like a female screenwriter uh, and you like, I don't know how the structure would work. The book is very much delineated into five different stories, but, uh, you know, that's that's the screenwriter's job to figure out how that works. Uh, I think that it would be a really interesting way into a story that has been told numerous times. Well, so far we have each made a choice that is very viable. I mean, thrillers, fantasy, you know, familiar properties and, or at least stories. So I think we're on the right track. I could see these all happening maybe in the next five years or so. I'm going to take a different tack though with my number four. I don't think this is ever going to happen, but I would like to see it happen. It's the screw tape letters by CS Lewis. Now Lewis, of course, his Narnia saga, it's gotten the big screen treatment. It's got the TV treatment. There are various adaptations out there. Disney made the best known features. At least they made the first three books of his Narnia series into feature films. And it looks like Netflix right now currently owns the rights to all seven of those chronicles of Narnia novels. So we'll see what comes of that. But I am looking toward another Lewis text with this pick, The Screwtape Letters. It is no wonder that this 1942 book hasn't been adapted, given its format. This is an epistolary novel, so takes the form of a series of letters. And in this case, these are letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his apprentice demon nephew named Wormwood. And basically, this is advice on how to lead astray this British man named The Patient. It's a strange book. It's a theological treatise in many ways, but it has a lot of the 
observationally funny thoughts about human nature that Lewis often offered in his works of apologetics. At the same time, it's something of a horror story. The reason I caught up with this, even, you know, knowing, having read so much Lewis over my life, but never had gotten to this, I finally caught up with it last year because I was doing research for my book on horror movies that's coming out and thought, okay, I've got to reach, I've got to read the screw tape letters and see if there's any way to kind of connect these things. So did give it a read and really enjoyed it. Now, how would you make a movie of this? To your point, Kristen, about adapting a nonfiction piece that could be a challenge. I'm just going to leave that to the man who has shown an interest in horror, shown an interest in biblical texts. His last two films started with a piece of scripture on the screen. That's Jordan Peele. He managed to make that work with his last two movies. Plus, imagine this. Imagine he gets frequent collaborator Daniel Kaluuya in widow's mode here, right? Where he played the mob enforcer, scary Daniel Kaluuya. I think he'd make for an effective screw tape. So my number four pick is going to be C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters. The best of luck to Mr. Peel. <laughs> I'm more of a great divorce C.S. Lewis guy over. Oh, really, Josh? But didn't okay. make my list. Great choice. Who do you great want to choice. direct that one, Adam? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not ready to go there. For my number four, I'm going with another genre pick here. 15 Easy Rollins stories, mysteries, have been written by Walter Mosley between 1990 and 2021. Only one of them has been made into a film. The first one, 1995's Devil in a Blue Dress. Denzel, of course, is easy. Don Cheadle and his breakout turn, certainly where I discovered him for the first time, playing Mouse, so good. Jennifer Beals, also co-stars, got pretty good reviews, as you would expect from that Carl Franklin. Hey, Tom Sizemore film. is in that, right? I believe he yeah, is. Yeah, he's right. there, yeah. And, and yeah, Carl Franklin coming off One False Move, such a good thriller. Not so good at the box office. I think the number I saw today was $17 million on a $25 million budget. I'm not good at math, but that that doesn't seem like it's so good. I have not read all of those Easy Rollins mysteries, but I'd love to see any of the three that followed Devil in a Blue Dress adapted into a movie. It could be a Red Death, White Butterfly, or Black Betty. And in early 2021... I found a bunch of articles that said Amblin Entertainment was going to turn these Easy Rollins stories into a TV series. Didn't find anything more about it. Doesn't seem like that's happened or that it's still on. And I'd take a TV show. Look, uh, of course I would. It might even be more appropriate for the serial nature of these stories, though Devil certainly worked as a standalone movie. And if I was making a standalone movie, I think my choice would be White Butterfly. Here's the quick plot description. The police don't show up on Easy's doorstep until the third girl dies. It's Los Angeles, 1956, and it takes more than a murdered black girl before the cops get interested. Now they need Easy. The LAPD need help to find the serial killer who's going around murdering young African-American strippers. They only show up when the killer murders a white girl. So how well did you know Coretta? She was a very close friend. So maybe you know why she got killed? Why would I know that? She said she was a very close friend. She knew about you and Frank. Maybe somebody wanted to keep that secret. Mr. Rollins, if you're thinking... Easy. You can call me easy. Easy if you're thinking that Frank had anything to do with Coretta's death, and obviously you don't know very much about him. Frank doesn't 
go around beating people up. He prefers to use a knife as his weapon. And what do you prefer to use as your weapon? Well, why don't you search me and find out? I hesitate a little bit about the serial killer angle, though that might get it greenlit. What I'm intrigued by more is the the relationship between Easy and the police. All of these stories set in the 40s and 50s primarily are are timely when it comes to Mosley's adaptations of race or Mosley's exploration of race in America and investigating that relationship between the black community and the LAPD. But I think the tension of them having to work together, albeit reluctantly, <laughs> Easy doesn't go into this because he isn't cajoled a little bit. It seems particularly potent to me. And there's an obvious choice for me. I mean, I'd love to see Denzel back playing Easy. I don't think it'll work out with some of these earlier versions of Easy. I'd love to see the the man of the moment star as the new Easy Rollins, Jonathan Majors. And who should direct? Well, how about Carl Franklin? You know, he could do it. <laughs> He also directed four episodes of Mindhunter, the David Fincher series on Netflix. He also directed one episode of Dahmer on Netflix, which I didn't see. So he's comfortable in this serial killer milieu. If Carl Franklin doesn't work out for some reason, I need to brush up on his work. But Majors just recently worked with J.D. Dillard on Devotion. I think that came out last year. And if I really, really, really wanted to shake things up here at at Kempinar Studios. We need to come up with a better name. Janiska Bravo. And the reason why is thinking about Zola in particular and all those competing narrative threads. I feel like that that might be a really good fit. Even though these Easy Rollins stories are so much more straightforward, they're still they're still a little complex in terms of their plotting and who is really motivated by what and, and who's trying to get what from who. And I wonder if that might actually be a nice fit for someone like Bravo. You might you might have to compete with uh, my studio for her talents, Adam. I, I might oh, okay. be uh, tapping her a little bidding little war. later, <laughs> bidding war a little later on my list. You know, um, Mosley actually there's a he just published a new book, Every Man a King, which I have not gotten to yet. I don't think it's an easy Rollins mystery, however, but yeah, still still very active, and I love that choice. Yeah, I I'm glad you included this. This was on my short list before I cut it just to include something else. So. Uh, great minds think alike because this also would have been my like number six probably so your number four is Kristen. so my number four is again we're keeping it in the period uh world because i do love a good period film uh especially a mystery series um so i had a friend who recommended to me because i love me my soft brit boys uh and she said well if you're looking for a book series that they have not adapted, that you could just fan cast all day who you would put in these roles. Uh, you need to read Elizabeth Peters' Amelia Peabody series, uh, which the first book is uh, Crocodile on the Sandbank. And it's pretty much like a, a female, like archaeologist, Indiana Jones type of story. Uh, so you have uh, set in like the, the you know, 1800s, uh, you have Amelia Peabody who has uh, a lot of money and a desire to just go exploring. So, of course, she goes to Egypt and bad stuff happens. So it's kind of like Agatha Christie only prioritizing like a young Magnum P.I. of the era. Like she's got a lot of money. She likes adventure. Bad stuff happens. Uh, and I think what I love about the character is she's just snarky 
Uh, she's constantly, you know, getting in the mix of things. And of course, the first book is kind of a, a light romance. So she ends up kind of butting heads with another person who is archaeologizing. I think that's a word. Uh, named Emerson, <laughs> who is uh, eventually becomes her husband as the series progresses. Uh, and it's very much like this meeting of two people that really love history and are big nerds, but are incredibly stubborn. And it's just great. It's all sorts of like feminist fun, uh, historical, you know, whimsy. Uh, and I think that it would be a lot of fun to see adapted. Uh, I don't want Kenneth Branagh to do it. I, I want him to keep making smutty, weird, uh, weird as hell Agatha Christie adaptations. <laughs> Uh, cause I think that he oddly enough is at least creating something that I'm intrigued by. Um, so I'm trying to think of like, who would be like a fun Brit director that would like, maybe like a Stephen Frears, but I don't want Stephen Frears now. Like I want Stephen Frears from like the nineties, if we could get him, uh, like, like a yeah. grifters era, Stephen Frears. Mm. Um, you know, uh, so I, I think that that would be, that would be a, a lot of fun uh, to see. And I mean, if we're casting people, I mean, I I would love to get like a like a Rebecca Ferguson as Amelia Peabody, you know, tall, Great statuesque, choice. can hold her own, um, like just gorgeous. Uh, and our Emerson, because he's already played like classy Brit detectives already, you know, you get Henry Campbell. Uh, you know, he he looks like he could definitely hang out in the sand. Uh, you know, looks great in like a button down shirt in the 1800s. Uh, it's perfect. So I need this. <laughs> I need this to happen ASAP. I can picture it. Here, here, this collective that we're gonna call Film Spotting Studios, the three of us. You'll find that we do have a time capsule. We're so rich, we have a time capsule. I'm all for this. Those things happen because. It's going to need to happen with some of my choices, too, as we get through this top five. Josh? This is this is what I was hoping I'd come away with, is a solid reading list. And this Amelia Peabody series, I am so in on, and I'm going to pass along to my high school daughter, who Indiana Jones, one of her favorite movie characters, I don't know that she's aware that there's a female correlation, and this might just blow her mind. So It's also good for like people that love The Mummy, the Stephen Summers, yeah. like the 99 Mummy. Like Honestly, you could probably take 1999 Rachel Weisz and, and Brendan Fraser and probably just plop them in the, these characters, there and it would go. still have worked. I love it. I think... I think you should call the first one, change the title to archaeologizing. I'm all for that. I think it's a word. I'm making this a word. I, I'm an English major. I can invent words. You can. That's right. We definitely green light that. All right. My number three. I have to thank Sam Van Hogren, our producer, for putting this book on my radar, whose names are unknown by Sonora Bab. So back in February, about a month ago, Sam retweeted author Skylar Shrimp who said this, John Steinbeck is trending, so now's as good as time as any to talk about Sonora Bab. I won't cite the whole thread, but basically Bab was a journalist and organizer who embedded with migrant farmers during the Depression, gathered their stories, and sounds like she aimed to write the definitive novel about the devastation of the Dust Bowl. Well, another book beat hers to press. John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, published in 19. 19- 39. So Sonora Babs' book, shelved by her publisher, didn't see the light of day until the 2000s when it was published just before her death. 
Shrimp's thread has a lot more about the relationship between Bab and Steinbeck's book. So we'll link to that in the show notes in case you want to dig into all of that. There's some more background on Bab as well there. I will share a few of Shrimp's thoughts about the book, though. She wrote this whose names are unknown, is far more intersectional than the Grapes of Wrath. It centers the experience of women. The workers who organize are made up of all colors. I love Grapes of Wrath, but gone are the days that it comes up in conversation and I don't bring up Sonora Bab. So thanks to Shrimp, thanks to Sam for highlighting this. I'm just finishing up Whose Names Are Unknown, and it's incredible. The descriptions of the weather alone, it starts in the Midwest or the Prairie, And just the way she captures both the comfort of the weather for these farmers and then the threat when it tends to turn on them and the dust itself, it's absolutely gorgeous. Then it follows them as one family in particular moves west towards California. It is certainly its own work of art alongside the Grapes of Wrath. So as for a director, Sam's going to love this too. First person I thought of, Chloe Zhao. I mean, whose names are unknown is very literary. There's a lot of literary flair there, but you definitely feel that it emerged from a journalist. There's a journalistic quality to it, which makes me think of Zhao's films like Nomadland and The Rider, which, you know, were, of course, their own ethnographic studies in a fictionalized form. So that's Whose Names Are Unknown by Sonora Bab. And just just one more thing, particularly for film spotting audience, I have to throw in that was in that Twitter thread. Uh, apparently, she was illegally married to cinematographer James Wong Hao. So what an, ama- what an amazing woman who I knew nothing about until last month. I saw that Twitter thread. Unlike you, I, I guess I, I didn't have enough curiosity. I didn't go down the rabbit hole. I'm so glad you did. Yeah, it's really worth it's really worth a read. I think almost especially as I can't imagine anyone who took a high school English class didn't read The Grapes of Wrath, right? So it's a nice way to kind of revisit that time and that sort of material through a different lens. All right. For my number three book I'd like to see adapted into a movie that I should add parenthetically will never happen. I'm going to stick with genre-ish. I'm going to stick with a detective though an unconventional one. And for a long time, as I was thinking about this list, I was sure I was going to find a way to put a Franz Kafka story, a Kafka novella on my list. And this is going to have to be my roundabout way of pulling that off. The Washington Post book world said about Paul Auster's City of Glass, which is part of his New York trilogy. They, they said that Quinn, the main character writer slash detective is a post existentialist private eye. It's as if Kafka has gotten hooked on the gumshoe game and penned his own ever spiraling version. Here's the one sentence synopsis. As a result of a strange phone call in the middle of the night, Quinn, a writer of detective stories becomes enmeshed in a case more puzzling than any he might have written. So there's one layer, Josh, we've got a guy who writes detective stories now becoming embroiled in his own detective stories and thinking back on it. I don't know what came first. I think I know actually the answer. Now my, my love for meta narratives or city of glass. I think it might've been city of glass that made me fall in love with meta narratives. I was probably exposed to something before in film or in literature prior to seeing it, but I'm going to think it was romancing the stone, Adam. Sure, it wasn't romancing the stone? Yeah, it, it might have been. I mean, you know, that's a masterpiece, of course. But I know City of Glass really captivated me. And the 
interesting thing about this or the thing where you can really start to have your head spin a little bit is I found one description. It's been so long since I've read it. I had to refresh my memory a little bit. And this only confused me, Josh, the layers of identity and reality here at play. You've got Paul Oster, the writer of the novel. You've got the unnamed author who reports the events as they're happening. You've got Paul Oster, the writer, a character in the story, and Paul Oster, the detective, who may or may not exist in the novel. There's like four at least versions of the writer himself, or maybe not the writer himself in this story. And I discovered Oster because of Smoke, the movie Smoke with Harvey Keitel, the Wayne Wang directed film, William Hurt, back in 95. And shortly after that, that same year actually, Wang and Oster together co-directed Blue in the Face, which was filmed over five days as a follow-up to that film. And then in 98, he did Lulu on the Bridge with Keitel. In 07, with Irene Jacob and David Thewlis, Oster directed The Inner Life of Martin Frost. These weren't very successful, and he hasn't made a film since then. And I even go back to a book of his I love called The Music of Chance that I went back and read it. It came out in 93, James Spader and Mandy Patinkin are in it. And I just want to give you this plot description here because it explains, I think just in these two sentences, you understand why more Paul Oster novels probably haven't been brought to the screen. A thrill seeker agrees to help a shady professional gambler win a high stakes poker game. However, they lose. I'll stop there. Okay. That sounds like a movie that, that might get made. Sure. However, they lose and become captives of two eccentric rich men who decide to forcibly keep them on their remote gated ranch as indentured servants. So, so now we're getting a little, a little more wacky, right? And that's, that's where these Paul Oster stories tend to go. Who's going to direct my version of City Glass? Can City I guess? Glass. Yeah, please. The way you were describing it, having read it, I think you got to bring in Charlie Kaufman. Uh, see, Kaufman was the first name that came to mind, Josh. Okay. And then I said, that's too obvious. Okay. It's too obvious. I, 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 need to, I need to go a little deeper than that. And here's a terrible idea that definitely wouldn't work, but it's the, the second name I came up with. Who better as a director to employ all these different personas and versions of himself and insert himself into the story who better than Jafar Panahi, the Iranian filmmaker. This is, this is what he does. That's meta for you. Of course, his films are so specific to his personal circumstances that I don't think it would ever work. So here's my next one. And it might be his last film, according to reports I saw this week on, on Twitter, Todd field, Todd field should direct my version of city of glass. The puzzling case becoming enmeshed with it. Talk of uh, a writer slash, you know, an artist slash detective going mad identity. What's real and what isn't, I don't know. Seems awful tar like to me, but also of its own kind that, that it would be a new, a new take on that or wouldn't, wouldn't cross over with tar in any way and feel derivative. I think Todd field would be the, the right director to manage that both formally and intellectually. And in terms of a star, I realized that when I read city of glass coming off of smoke back in the nineties, I read it as if Quinn, the main character was William Hurt. 
because I had just seen William Hurt in Smoke as the main character, and he just seemed to internalize so nicely these Auster lines as if he was speaking for the author himself. That's how I how I took it. I thought, oh, Quinn is William Hurt. That's who I saw in my head. Did you ever hear of Sir Walter Raleigh? Yeah, sure. That's the guy who threw his cloak down over that puddle. Uh, um, I used to smoke Raleigh cigarettes. Yeah, they came with a free gift coupon in every pack. That's the man. Well, Raleigh was the person who introduced tobacco in England. And since he was a, a favorite of the Queen's, Queen Bess, he used to call her, smoking caught on as a fashion at court. I'm sure old, old Bess must have shared a stogie or two with Sir Walter. I can't bring back William Hurt. Who am I going to go with? And even though I don't think he looks like him at all, I need someone who can match him in terms of being cerebral, but also mysterious and can go a little dark. And he's one of the best actors on the planet, so you know he can do anything. Adam Driver is my, is my Quinn. Adam Driver, directed by Todd Field, who I'd love to see do anything together, quite frankly. I mean, if, as long as he's taking care of those space dinosaurs and he can move on, yes, Adam Driver. <laughs> All right, Kristen, we are ready for your number three book you want to adapt. Yeah, so this was actually originally my number two. And then as I started thinking about stuff, I was like, eh, I think it can be three. It still, still makes the list. Um, I love me a good detective uh, story, uh, as most people do. Uh, and there is a book series uh, written by Matt Sal Collins. Most people know him as one who who has been associated with like Roach Perdition um, and a lot of other titles. But he has a, a series of uh, novels around uh, his detective character, Nathan Heller, who is kind of like Forrest Gump in the sense that he is just like each book sees the character show up at some sort of famous murder uh, and have to figure out what's going on. So he's, you know, been involved in like the Marilyn Monroe death and, you know, the death of Bugsy Siegel and, uh, you know, the the murder that inspired the fugitive. Uh, so a lot of different ones. Honestly, I have no one novel that would work. Uh, I think that the entire Nathan Heller series is worth adapting. Uh, you know, you can really just take your pick of like which crime do you want him to work with? Uh, and they're all fun. Uh, he does a lot of really like deep research. He reads a lot of books, brings in a lot of like alternate theories uh, about what what could have happened. Uh, and they're just they're just fun. They're just fun, like old school. Uh, you know, Max Allen Collins is a big fan of like Mickey Spillane. Uh, and I think that he's kind of like a modern day version of that. So, so some of the materials a bit misogynist. Uh, it's a bit questionable in terms of like, but but the the character's supposed to be an antihero. You know, you're not really supposed to think he's perfect. Um, so I I would just love to see like if we could get like Curtis Hansen back, like LA Confidential era Curtis Hansen, I would be fine with that. Although I do think uh, I know he's still in like director jail for for valid reason, but I know that Joe Conahan tried for a long time to adapt White Jazz. Uh, the James Elroy novel. And I think that this might be more in his wheelhouse because the character, again, is meant to be pulpier and more hard-boiled. Uh, so, you know, Carnegie can indulge all of the bad vices he has as a director uh, and and do it with some, some fun and some whiz-bang. Uh, and as far as who can play our lead, 
I mean, you can really just get like any ridiculously good looking kind of like smarmy like dude actor. I, I always see Chris Evans every time I read a book. Uh, you know, I can just I can hear it in my head. Um, but I also do get like you could probably include Colin Farrell in there just because, again, the character is very much like a ladies man. He's always having sex with somebody. It's like very much like a James Bond type of thing. Uh, so really, you could get just any, like, hot flavor of the month, um, but I would be all for, like, Chris Evans or Colin Farrell in a fedora, uh, because I think the books span from, like, the late (laughs) 30s to up until, like, the the mid-1950s, end of the 50s. Um, so, yeah, I I support all of this. Uh, it's, uh, it's not, it's not, it's, like, set in my mind as my number one is, but... Yeah, every time I read uh, these novels, I keep saying, how has this not been a series? I know that Max Collins let them adapt his Quarry series for Showtime. They did a, a very short-lived series that nobody remembers but me, uh, that I think Cinemax did. Uh, and I've I've been fortunate to interview Max Collins, and I've asked him before, like, when is Nathan Heller going to get adapted for film? And he has said he, he's not. Uh, I don't know if it's because no one's interested or he won't sell the rights. Um, but I, I would love to see the character because I, I miss the era of love, nostalgic love that we had like around 2013 for the 1950 like gumshoe story. Like we got like, um, like Gangster Squad, you know, even like my, uh, Michael Mann's Public Enemies. Like I, I loved that time period. Uh, apparently I was the only one because a lot of those movies didn't make money, <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I would love for it to come back because um, we love true crime. We love old Hollywood crime. This is like original thinking here. Uh, again, Boston Strangler, we can get that story, but like we can't get an actual like fun fictional character that like just runs through. Um, if these were a little bit more, more comedic, it would be great to see Ryan Johnson do like classic old hollywood benoit blanc um but yeah i i need these i need these books to be adapted at least one of them before i shuffle off this mortal coil we know chris evans in a sweater is a thing speaking of evans and ryan johnson why not make chris evans in a fedora Fedora, exactly like i think this will be great i think it would be fantastic i mean we we need to just do this <laughs> well, we have more books we'd like to see adapted into movies coming up. We're adding to all of our reading lists. And in case you're missing any of the titles or you want to make sure you're getting all of those details, author, book title, you can check them out. All of our top fives are archived at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. I have you for two nights. Depending on business, it may be more. Of course, sir. So when the old place get a facelift... Around four years ago. But I assure you, sir, she really hasn't changed much. Same owner. Same owner. Room 818. And as always, it is a pleasure having you with us again, Mr. Wick. The late Lance Reddick in a scene there from 2014's John Wick. The actor passed away last weekend. He was just 60 years old, and I want to be clear in how I say this, Josh, because I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing him or his legacy at all, but I was surprised pleasantly so to see the outpouring of emotion when he passed on social media. So many people that we follow and film minds that we appreciate 
spoke really eloquently about performances of his in various movies and TV shows that they appreciate. He was a Yale School of Drama grad in 94, and I think of him fondly not only from the John Wick movies, where he is the concierge, but he was also Lieutenant Cedric Daniels on five seasons of The Wire. And where I discovered Lance Reddick, he was an undercover cop on Oz in the early 2000s. I was a devotee of that show, loved that character, really sad to see Lance Reddick go at the age of 60. We're going to spend some time with Reddick when we see John Wick 4 and discuss it on next week's show. The 169-minute, I'm learning, John Wick for Adam. I'm hoping Reddick oh, gets like 40 of those minutes. I mean, yeah, did you I know so this? Too. I did. I saw it myself. Then Sam reminded me of it. And I'm going to try to forget it before I walk into the theater. That's that's probably the best mindset. I like that approach. Also, next week, we're going to continue our sight and sound top 100 blind spots marathon. So this is a selection of titles that neither of us have seen from the most recent Sight and Sound Top 100 list. We started this marathon with Sancho the Bailiff, a very rewarding watch and discussion. Next up, Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life from 1959. That one landed at number 93 on the 2022 Sight and Sound Critics Poll. Yeah, we set a high bar, not only starting with that Mizuguchi film, but According to listener Maria Gonzalez, who follows us on Twitter, we made her cry during our discussion of a couple of scenes from Sancho the Bailiff. So are we going to be able to pull that off with Imitation of Life? I mean, I think I think the movie made her cry more, more than we did. So let's not put okay. any pressure on ourselves. Whatever. Yeah, six, <laughs> one half dozen of the other. Our future shows can be found in terms of what we think we're going to get to content-wise at filmspotting.net slash episodes. And the titles we'll talk about as part of this marathon are all available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they're doing some John Wick talk as well. John Wick 4 with Lee Marvin in John Borman's Point Blank. Really good, fun pairing there. Man, talk about a blind spot. That is one I'll have to catch up with before I listen to this show. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. So I mentioned last week, Adam, plans have been finalized for Ebert Interruptus at the Conference of World Affairs, something I've been doing the last couple of years. And this year we're going to discuss and watch in-depth Honeyland, the 2019 docudrama about a solitary beekeeper in Macedonia whose routines are disrupted by a family that moves in nearby. Here's the really fun thing for film spotting listeners. Please come join us first day in April. We're going to watch the movie. The next two days, we're going to dissect it scene by scene audience participation. This is April 12th through 14, but film spotting listeners, we're also having a meetup as we've done every year that I've gone for five years now. This has been really fun. We cap off the event with a meetup at a local burger bar, the sink. The familiars know this. There's been some people who've been there every year and I love seeing them. So if you're interested in that, the film spotting meetup is going to be Friday, April 14th. 
Ebert Interruptus takes place April 12 through 14. Come any day you can. Come all days if you can. But if you just want to hang out with some film spotting listeners, it's going to be Friday, April 14 at our usual place in Boulder, Colorado, The Sink. We'll put an RSVP link in the show notes for this episode because it'll be good to see who might be able to make it. We're a little behind the eight ball here. Plans were finalized later than usual. So I want to get a sense of who's able to make it this year and make sure we've got a table and a place to hang out there at the sink. So look for that in the show notes. You including this here in this part of the show isn't so much a call to action for our listeners as it is a reminder to me that I have to up the credit card limit on the film spotting credit <laughs> maybe, card. Maybe, maybe. I mean, we're not talking like Seattle 20, I forget that what, what that was, 20, 2016, 2017, that broke the bank, that had the creditors coming after us. That's still a record. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes we get good crowds out there in Boulder. We do want to thank every listener who went over to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify and gave us a positive rating. Those really do help us reach new listeners. Those reviews are especially fun to read. And it's been a while, Josh, since we've really shared any feedback here in our episodes. We used to regularly feature kind words from our audience, but this one caught our producer Sam's attention first. He shared it on Twitter and we just couldn't help it. We loved how this review was worded, how it was framed, and we wanted to share it with all of you. And of course, we do encourage anyone who has similarly warm feelings about us to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Josh, would you like to do the honors here? This is Blah113Blah. I first heard film spotting on a road trip in 2019 with an ex-boyfriend. I don't remember the trip at all and only know it was 2019 because I remember clicking on the episode about Midsommar. It made more of an impact than wherever we were driving to. We were sick of music and trying to decide on a podcast genre we would both like, When at a gas station, I searched movie reviews and happened to click on this podcast. Neither of us were sure about it at first. It's awkward to try a new thing with a new boyfriend. It takes time to like people or characters or more specifically hosts to get into a format well-established that you're not familiar with. I don't want to be too maudlin here, Josh, and interrupt, but I wasn't the only person to note that this is an ex-boyfriend and the show they listened to was Midsommar. I know. I saw some. I imagine there are a lot of relationships out there on Twitter that maybe didn't survive Midsommar. Not that that's necessarily the case here. After the trip, blah one thirteen blah continues. When I was delivering food, I clicked on it again. I remember driving at night to these guys talking about what a golden brick is, and I watched the last black man in San Francisco. I remember falling in love with Bo Burnham through an interview. Something about a skateboard movie sticks in my memory at a particular street in Minneapolis dropping off someone's dinner in the dark. That would be another golden brick winner minding the gap. And now in 2023, last night, I watched Francis Ha so that I could get more out of their top five best Noah Baumbach characters episode. This podcast is warm to me like night deliveries and feels like it sits in a special place in my memory, even though I haven't even been listening that long. When I watch a movie... I have a place to go. Very kind and well-written as well. Yeah, so so good. That's like an eloquent version of those AMC commercials. It just it just warms your heart with the magic of movies, doesn't it, Josh? That's <laughs> what we try to do every week, I guess. <laughs> we won't use that as a tagline, but we might steal something about when you watch a movie, you have a place to go. Our sincere thanks 
to that listener and to everyone who has shared kind words about the show over the years. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! All right, it is Film Spotting Madness Best of the 1960s time. Sweet 16 results, Elite 8 matchups, and those polls are open. Vote now. Filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. You have until 11 a.m. on Monday, March 27th to get your picks in. Do we, Josh, have a Cinderella among the eight remaining? The answer is no. That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> we don't. The Elite Eight, it turns out, consists entirely of the selection committee's top eight seeds. Okay. No funny stuff either. Sam and I didn't rig this. We just tried to predict what, you know, top 10 seeds we thought were most likely to advance. And it turns out the top eight are the top eight. We should thank the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Some of our esteemed members of the Film Spotting family who on a Zoom quarterly meeting yeah got this a is sneak true peak they got a sneak peek at that top 10 and they helped us move a few things around and turns out their wisdom helped because the top eight are the top eight this round also saw the closest matchup of the tournament so far we will get to that in a bit we do first want to see how things went down with the matchups that were the hardest for us personally to vote on the good the bad and the ugly versus rosemary's baby the Graduate, up against Night of the Living Dead, and Eight and a Half versus Bonnie and Clyde. Here's a comment from Jordan Jersick on the good-bad versus Rosemary matchup. If this is the last gasp of Sergio Leone's masterful spaghetti westerns and film spotty madness, I want to go on the record with how much they mean to me. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West upended everything I thought I knew about Westerns and opened my eyes to the profound impact of blocking and cinematography in film. Their sweeping Ennio Morricone scores haunt my dreams. They also both tell gripping and morally ambiguous stories that, when compared to your standard Saturday morning John Wayne odor, revealed the vast possibilities of genre storytelling. Watching these films, I felt like someone had forgotten to tell me something important, and I was thrilled to have discovered it on my own. I wanted to share them with everyone. I had, in hindsight, deeply misguided, a poster of Clint Eastwood in a noose hanging on my dorm wall. These are the films that made me a cinephile, and I will treasure them forever. Oh, and Rosemary's Baby is pretty good, too. <laughs> Watching these films, I felt like someone had forgotten to tell me something important. I love that, Jordan. And yeah, he has to come in here with that fine wording and make me feel really bad about the fact that I love both of these Sergio Leone films and Josh, I've picked against them. I think every step of the way. Oh, wow. That's how tough the competition is in this best of the sixties bracket. And this one was pretty close, but good, the bad and the ugly did make it past Rosemary's baby 58% to 42%. Here's Rick Taylor in Kelowna, BC about the graduate and Night of the Living Dead. This was by far my most difficult choice in the Sweet 16. The Graduate is brilliant and an important film, but Night of the Living Dead arguably invented an entire subgenre, and that final scene is sublime and subversive, especially so to a 1968 audience. Even now, Night of the Living Dead is a jolting watch, and I can only imagine how viewers reacted back then. The Graduate may be cool and all, 
but they're coming for you, Dustin. <laughs> P.S. Suggestion for the punishment to the loser of your internal bracket contest. Too late for this year, perhaps, but what if each of you submitted a secret ballot with a terrible movie that the loser must watch? At the end, the loser draws out a ballot, having subtracted their own, and that is the punishment. We've actually kicked wow. around something like that before. It might have even been a listener idea, all the best ones are, where basically we go through a little bit of a selection process on what the worst movies of That's the right, yeah. could be. Yeah, right. And you have to watch whatever the, the number one seat is there. I do like that. It's yeah, let's bad. make it more vindictive and, and personally violent yeah. as possible. Why not? So that one, even closer, but the graduate took it mm -hmm. despite Rick's pleading 56% to 44%. And that brings us finally to eight and a half versus Bonnie and Clyde. The round's closest matchup, and yes, the closest matchup of the tourney. 1,500 votes, Josh, and it came down to 11. Wow. 11. This, this poll went to 11. Eight and a half emerges, makes it on to the elite eight at the buzzer, 50.38% of the vote to 49.62. That is crazy. So if you don't feel like your vote counts. Right. Proof. This is proof. It does. You can see all Sweet 16 results at filmspottingmadness.com. There's a link to the bracket and more there. So those top eight seeds, the elite eight that moved on, they are... 2001, A Space Odyssey, Psycho, Lawrence of Arabia, The Apartment, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Dr. Strangelove, Eight and a Half, and The Graduate. Maybe you're hearing that list and you're thinking, I'm going to vote for all those movies. I don't blame you, <laughs> but you can't. And that's why we call it madness. You got to pick. Only four of these. So, Josh, the Elite Eight matchups, we don't really have to work too hard here to pull out the toughest or the easiest. We only have the four. And I know of these four, which one is the one that gave me appropriately, hint it, nightmares. Mm. I want to see if it's the same one that gave you nightmares. The toughest by far here is Hitchcock's Psycho versus Fellini's Eight and a Half. Eight and a Half, a movie I have put before in my top four favorite films on Letterboxd. And then you've got Psycho, a film that we just revisited. Five-star review from me. Fell in love with it all over again. Absolutely a masterpiece, just like Eight and a Half is. Both five-star films, and I have to pick one. So keep going because this is a speed round for me. I don't really? have I don't have a challenge among any of these. Okay. So you went psycho. Yep. I'm guessing. And I'm sticking I'm sticking with my movie about the movies. You know I am. Eight and a <laughs> half is beating psycho. It's beating it. You nineteen eighties Academy Awards voter, you. That's right. <laughs> but really hard, and I don't feel at all good about it. So then I guess if none of these really gave you much pause, we'll just go back to the top. 2001 A Space Odyssey is the number one overall seed. Yes. And it's going up against Mike Nichols, The Graduate. I do love The Graduate, but I picked Night of the Living Dead to beat it, and I am definitely picking 2001. Of course you are. Everyone should. Anyone voting for Everyone. The Graduate should that? be ashamed. <laughs> I love it. This is when the gauntlet is always thrown down as we're getting to the Elite Eight. Okay, what about Jordan's? 
the good, the bad, and the ugly as we're talking about Sergio Leone, but he's got a face, oh, a really fierce competitor in Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. It's a matter for me of craft and heart or craft and heartlessness, mm, well I think. And I'm not saying this is the right way to go, <laughs> but if I want a movie to survive, it's the one that has the craft and the heart. And yeah. so that's The Apartment. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on The Apartment. Finally, David Leans, Lawrence of Arabia. Against another Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove, I I know you're going. I'm sorry to take the suspense out of this. You're, of course, going with Lawrence because you already have one Kubrick in here that you yeah. are definitively choosing. Right. I think you said that maybe Strangelove isn't a beloved film of yours and Lawrence of Arabia is Lawrence of Arabia. It is Lawrence of Arabia. That is confirmed. And we've never really hashed this out, but... This is nowhere near the place to get into it, but I have a bit of a humor issue with Kubrick that's similar to my humor issue with Scorsese. It's just not their, it's not their entirely their lane, not that they can't do it, but when they intend to do it first and foremost, when it's the main thing they want to do, I don't think they're at the height of their powers. And so for me, that's where Strange Love is a little lower in the Kubrick canon, even though I do like it. I don't think it's a bad film by any means. It's not Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I feel more strongly about it than you do. I think it's a top five Kubrick for me, and I love almost all of Kubrick's work, if not all of it. But I do have more of a fondness for Lawrence of Arabia. That's my choice. You can vote in those Elite Eight matchups now. Once again, filmspotting.net slash madness or filmspottingmadness.com. We will get down to our final four next week. In our bracket prediction contest... After round two, Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire, had sole possession of first place. This is the overall bracket prediction contest, 700 entries. And after the Sweet 16, Josh, he's still all alone in first. Incredible. He had a perfect Sweet 16. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Well done. Well done, Mike. The Elite Eight is going to be a make or break round for all of us, though, including Mike. Mm. Most people, including Mike, have... 2001 and Psycho moving on to the final four. There is, though, a good deal of variation for those other two slots. Apartment versus Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is going to be close. It is shaping up that Lawrence of Arabia versus Dr. Strangelove is going to be very, very close. And that's going to go a long way to determining who will be the Madness champ. We also have our Film Spotting Family Members Only Prediction Contest, Kevin H., is the leader there for the second week. He's had two perfect rounds in a row. Well done, Kevin. He listens to the show from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Josh, he's been listening for 13 years. Wow. That's that's even just before you joined the show. He writes, I took what I like to think of as the Josh Larson approach to madness, which is to say, I picked whatever seemed right in the moment and then immediately forgot about what I chose. Hey, you know what, Kevin? You and I sleep pretty well, don't we? That leaves our internal bracket contest, and we'll get to one of us who's not sleeping so soundly these days. That's you, me, producer Sam, Mike Merrigan, and our 2022 winner, Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon. He was the overall bracket prediction contest champ. And here are the standings, Josh. I'm so tired of this segment. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, <laughs> trust me, it wasn't my idea. Mike Merrigan, if he's number one overall, well, he's definitely in the lead here. Brett Fisher in second. No real surprise. He won it all last year. He was 20th last week, Josh. He's moved all the way up to number eight. Nice. Overall. He did miss one, though. He had Bonnie and Clyde beating eight and a half. So close. Josh, you are in third. You were 32nd overall. You moved up a whole slot. Hey, hey. You missed one. You thought Bergman's persona would take down Dr. Strangelove. I did? Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Sam is in fourth. He was 24, dropped all the way to 97. He missed two. He thought Rosemary's Baby would prevail over Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He thought Bonnie and Clyde would beat eight and a half. And finally, I only missed one. I thought Rosemary's Baby would also triumph over the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But I'm still in fifth. It did help me a little bit. I was 141st. I've moved up to 122nd. So okay. I'm going to choose to look at it like out of 700. That's that's pretty good. I would say so. Yeah. Thank you, You Josh. should feel Thank good you. about yourself. Thank you. But in our internal contest, I'm fifth, and there's only one loser in this competition. (laughs) This is is true. Right now, that is definitely me, and it looks like that might just stick. We do encourage you all to go to the Elite Eight page of our Film Spotting Madness tournament. It's all at filmspottingmadness.com. So tell me your thoughts on this crazy little project of ours. First, I think it's a great book. LaRoche is a fun character, isn't it? Absolutely. And Orlean makes orchids so fascinating. Plus her, her musings on Florida and orchid poaching, Indians, it's, just, it's great sprawling New Yorker stuff. And I'd want to remain true to that. You know, I'd, I'd want to let the uh, movie exist rather, rather than be artificially plot-driven. Great. <laughs> I guess I'm not exactly sure what that means. Oh. Appropriate choice for this top five. Very good film from Spike Jones adaptation, Tilda Swinton, starring along with Nicolas Cage in a dual role. And that brings us back to our top five. We have Kristen Lopez rejoining us. She is the author of the new book. But have you read the book? 52 literary gems that inspired our favorite films. We're not talking, though, about actual books or actual movies. We're we're in dreamland here. We're creating our own fictional movie studios, and we're greenlighting whatever projects we would like. We're taking books that we've read and that we've enjoyed, and we're making them into movies. We have two more choices to make, Josh. What's your number two? My number two proposal is Moses' Man of the Mountain by Zora Neale Hurston. So a friend and colleague of mine, Claude Acho, he published a wonderful nonfiction book last year called Reading Black Books. And this is basically a theological interpretation of some of the great works of African-American literature. I knew this was coming out, and so I wanted to make sure that I had read all of the titles he covers in his book. And one of my blind spots was this one, Zora Neale Hurston's Moses, Man of the Mountain. This is basically a reimagination of the book of Exodus, particularly the story of Moses, and presenting it within the context of African-American culture. It's pretty wild, especially if you grew up with Bible storybooks where Moses, you know, looks more like Charlton Heston. This is this is a little bit of a different experience of the biblical story. 
Maybe that's why it hasn't been adapted, unlike other of Hurston's works, like probably her most well-known work, Their Eyes Were Watching God. That one got a TV movie adaptation with Halle Berry. This would require someone irreverent, yes, but not reckless. It's a delicate balance, what Hurston is doing here. And so the person would have to be willing to provoke, but also genuinely interested in these ideas of culture, in the liberation theology that Zora Neale Hurston is exploring. And so here, Adam, is where Janitska Bravo came to mind for me. She has been, since Zola, doing a lot of TV, including some episodes of Poker Face. But man, Zola made my top 10 list that year because I love the energy of it. I love the style of it. I love the commentary going on in it. And it showed a talent adept at doing something incredibly unique, which is what this would absolutely require. Now, as for Moses, who's going to challenge Charlton Heston? Hey, how about Brian Tyree Henry, recent Oscar nominee for Causeway? I mean, I think this clicked when I was watching the Oscars, the, the, you know, lead up to the Oscars. And there was a carpet interview he did and he was talking about casting directors, not really knowing where to pigeonhole him for parts and how he liked that, right? He's been funny. He's been intense. He's been dramatic. He's been scary. And, uh, you know, according to him, that's thrown casting directors off. They haven't been able to just say, this is what you do. I think this would certainly keep people guessing. And I think he would absolutely be up to the task. So that would be my dream project. Moses, man of the mountain, Zora, Neil Hurston. You, you had me definitely at Brian Tyree, Henry. I'm, I'm intrigued. My number two book I'd like to see adapted into a movie, and here with my next two choices, my top two, we're getting into full-on white whale territory, and no, I don't mean Moby Dick, not eligible, because it was made into a movie back in the 50s, I think. Gregory Peck and John Huston beat us to that. But I wouldn't put down any money on either of these choices ever coming to fruition. That doesn't mean I can't dream about it, though. I want to see an adaptation of Bud Schulberg's What Makes Sammy Run. The definitive book about Hollywood still, published back in 1941. Incredibly talented writer Bud Schulberg wrote On the Waterfront, wrote Judgment at Nuremberg, wrote A Face in the Crowd. Nathan Rabin, back in 2009 for the AV Club, wrote a little bit about this story and depictions of it or productions of what makes Sammy run. The occasion was a DVD set that came out where we got the only two otherwise produced versions of this story. There was a 1949 TV version starring Jose Ferrer. And then in 1959, there was a two-part Sunday showcase that Delbert Mann, the director of Marty, made. And this is Rabin on what makes Sammy run. Hollywood has a long, tortured relationship with what makes Sammy run. Bud Schulberg's seminal showbiz novel about a ruthlessly ambitious Jewish striver in his desperate bid for power and fame. According to a biography of Samuel Goldwyn by Arthur Marks, the legendary mogul offered to pay Schulberg not to publish the novel out of fear that it would exacerbate anti-Semitism with his dark portrait of an unscrupulous schemer out to make it at any cost. Schulberg, whose father was a prominent studio exec in his own right, refused. 
Making a movie of Sammy has long been Ben Stiller's dream project. In 2001, DreamWorks paid more than $2.5 million to buy the rights to the book as a vehicle for Stiller, but the film never got off the ground. He did. He tried to make that with Jerry Stahl, who he'd collaborated with on Permanent Midnight. And you can Google it and read all about how they screwed up right out of the gate when they put together their screenplay draft, thought they'd really nailed it. They'd done some really first-rate work, walk into a meeting that Bud Schulberg is in attendance for, and they knew that things were bad right from the beginning when he commented that he noticed they had left off the front page, the cover of the screenplay, based upon the novel by Bud Schulberg. <laughs> Rough start for those guys. And there is an LA Times article from 98, I found, that said, how about this? In 2001, anyone remember Michael Keaton Jones, the director of Doc Hollywood? with Michael J. Fox, he invited Bud Schulberg to the set of Doc Hollywood because he wanted to make it with Michael J. Fox as Sammy Glick. A year before that, or actually back in 1990, I should say, Sidney Lumet was interested in making What Makes Sammy Run. And at the time, and I do remember hearing about this at the time, Tom Cruise was supposed to play this main character. Some of the lines, some of the writing from Schulberg, I mentioned just how good he was. He, he has a line at one point in What Makes Sammy Run where he says, it made me uncomfortable. I guess I've always been afraid of people who can be agile without grace. That's the, the narrator, Al Mannheim, who's the drama critic for the New York Record for this newspaper, who kind of mentors Sammy and, and, as I said, narrates his story because he... Sammy has just started out as a copy boy there and then rises to all this success. And here's, here's another passage I love. He says, first, no qualms. He's talking about Sammy here and what he notices about him. Not the thinnest sliver of misgiving about the value of his work. He's able to feel that the most important job in the world was putting over Monsoon. That's a screenplay that he basically, or a plot, he basically lifted from someone else. In the second place, he was as uninhibited as a performing seal. He never questioned his right to monopolize conversations or his ability to do it entertainingly. And then there was his colossal lack of perspective. This was one of his most valuable gifts, for perspective doesn't always pay. It can slow you down. You know it's dog-eat-dog. Here in New York, anywhere, I know. I've been through it. And now, where are you going now, Sammy? All the way. And I'm not going to look back till the others are chasing my tail. Like the Greyhound track. Except your mechanical rabbit is fame. And fortune, baby. Don't ever forget fortune. So what makes Sammy run again? Just this, this specifically Hollywood story and of its time and place, but also captures a certain type of ladder climber that's endemic to America and the notion of the American dream that I think is absolutely timeless. And the same way... You know, we talk about Zelig or Zelig-like characters. You can talk about Sammy Glick, and in a lot of circles, people know exactly what type of person you're referring to, someone who's just a relentless pursuer of success. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the cost is. One of my favorite books, and I think the guy who has to make it, is Paul Thomas Anderson, because why not? It's Paul Thomas Anderson, but also he grew up with a dad in the business. He grew up around the business, and he's excelled at making stories that are about conflicted fathers and sons and protege mentor relationships like like Al Mannheim and and Sammy Glick and Sammy is really nothing but a glorified con man in essence right no different than a lot of these great PT Anderson characters in terms of who's going to star 
I don't really remember how Glick is described in the book. I know that in terms of the chronology, he starts out younger and we go through a few decades with him. Cruz and Stiller were going to play him. I think they were both in their 30s at the time that was being talked about. The younger Sammy, how about fresh off the Fablemans, Gabriel LaBelle came to mind for Sammy Glick. Thinking of the Fablemans too, his Jewishness, for this writer, for Bud Schulberg, this is a key component of this story and this character. That, that spoke to me in terms of thinking about LaBelle. But he's 20. He can play the young Sammy. I don't think he could... He could play the older Sammy. So my pick here is someone who I had to do a little sleuthing today, a little research. Jake Gyllenhaal. Mother was Jewish. And not only that, played a very scary Sammy Glick in Nightcrawler. Yeah. If you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy the ticket. I think I think Gyllenhaal's the guy. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a job. In fact, I've made up my mind to find a career that I can learn and grow into. Who am I? I'm a hard worker. I set high goals and I've been told that I'm persistent. Now I'm not fooling myself, sir. Having been raised with the self-esteem movement so popular in schools, I used to expect my needs to be considered. But I know that today's work culture no longer caters to the job loyalty that could be promised to earlier generations. What I believe, sir, is that good things come to those who work their asses off. And that good people, such as yourself, who reached the top of the mountain, didn't just fall there. My motto is, if you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy a ticket. You have to make the money to buy a ticket. You have to make the money to buy a ticket! Yeah, I like that pairing, PTA and Gyllenhaal, for anything, really, but but for this in particular. But can you imagine if Billy Wilder had taken a swing at this? Oh, I know. I mean, you know, like in not long after the book had been published, and, and I don't know, maybe Jack Lemmon with him, but anybody, really. I mean, it seems primed for that sort of sensibility as Lemon, well. Lemon as Al Mannheim would have been perfect. Okay, there don't you go. Know who exactly would have been the era appropriate Sammy Glick, but yeah, I'm on board with your version too. Let's fire up the time capsule. <laughs> Kristen, you're number two. Yeah. So my number two, yeah, if we're talking about things that probably won't happen, uh, I feel like too many people would compare this book to M. Night Shyamalan's Split, which is upsetting to me because the book is way better than Split. Uh, but people have short attention spans and I would believe that they would hear the premise and think oh like split and i would be like no but that's probably a big reason why it hasn't been adapted yet um but my number two is uh matt ruff's set this house in order matt ruff is the author who originally wrote lovecraft country which the book is very different than the television show um in ways that are both good and bad but i decided after i watched lovecraft country and loved most of it uh that i wanted to read uh a lot of of matt ruff's other books uh and most of his books are really really great they're very bizarre um another one that almost made this list uh was another one called 88 names but set this house in order i think is just such a brilliantly weird uh novel because it follows a main character named andy gage who essentially has been emotionally and physically traumatized to the point that he has died uh, his his body is still functioning, but his brain is just like fragmented into a million different personalities. And they all live, as the book lays out, in this house in his head, uh, where they all coexist. So, you know, you have you have Aaron, who is the father figure, you have Adam, who is a teenager, there's Jake, who's a little boy, 
there's a million other people and they all it, live in this house that has many rooms uh, and are compartmentalized. Uh, but things go wrong uh, when Andy meets a coworker named Penny, who also has multiple personalities uh, that she doesn't really know she has. Uh, she just essentially wakes up not understanding what has happened and people have interactions with her and she doesn't realize it. And the two have to band together when uh, Penny's multiple personalities are asking Andy for help. Uh, and it really is just this bizarre movie uh, with so many different angles for fun character acting and a lot of like weird visual effects because you have to represent the interior uh, house of the the mind of the main character. And it's just so much fun. It's one of those where to read, like me describing it does not sell it. You have to read it in order to just be like completely enmeshed in the story, um, which is probably another big reason that it's not going to be adapted because how do you translate something so bizarre to describe in a pitch meeting? Um, but I would love for them to do it because it's so funny and sweet like there's the love story is somewhat you know is very romantic it's weird as hell but again people are going to be like it's like split right because there's multiple person no it's not it's far more complex and deep than that um as far as like who could direct this i mean you could go somewhat how very far field like a quentin tarantino you know where it's just going to be very manic and you know laying like lengthy because you're dealing with so many different disparate personalities um, but for me, you know, because I think if anything, I see less split and more identity, albeit hopefully a far better version of that. But James Mangold, I think, would be really interesting in blending all of the different tones together. And as far as who you could get to star as our main character, I mean, you know, you could go different ways with the presentation of the multiples. Um, you could go like the weird Robert Zemeckis, like de-aging, like various characters, like they're all Tom Hanks. Uh, you don't really want that. Uh, but <laughs> I can see that being the easiest way to do it. But I mean, you need a lead character who you can believe would have all of these different facets to him. You know, one who, someone who is dangerous, someone who is, who can be sweet and normal, someone who can be like manic and exciting. Uh, and I keep seeing Alexander Skarsgård because I think he can play all of those things. Um, and I haven't figured out who my penny is because you need somebody that, you know, again, is, is kind of like, could be all of these disparate elements. I kept going Emma Stone. I don't love it, but I could see it happening. Um, all of them in a Quentin Tarantino-directed film. Uh, that would be very fascinating to see. Uh, I'm not selling the book well enough. Just go read it, because it's great. They're, most of Matt Rupp's books are great. Uh, and they're very quick reads, so they're not very long at all. But set this house in order. I would love to see it, but I'm pretty sure it's impossible. <laughs> Well, if we have anyone out there who's familiar with the material and has a penny in mind, you'd like to recast any of our movies here, please send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're at our number one here, Josh, the number one book you would love to see adapted into a film. I'm so excited for this one. I think this one might actually have a shot. It's The Greenhouse by Mario Vargas Llosa. I mentioned before, Adam, to the trip we've got coming up, my high school daughter and I this summer, to the Amazon region of Peru, sort of a citizen scientist thing. And so I wanted to do some reading to get ready, familiarize myself with the history, the culture, all that sort of stuff. So I researched Peruvian authors, came across Mario Vargas Llosa, a novelist who's had 
some works adapted for the screen, actually. He even co-directed one of them, 1976's Pentalion. So far, though, no version of the book that I did end up reading, The Green House. I chose this one because it's set in the area where we're going to be traveling, the Peruvian Amazon. It takes place over 40 years, beginning, I think, in the early 1900s, and has this vast set of characters. So it's probably best just to read from the back cover of the paperback translation that I was able to get through the library. Mario Vargas Llosa's classic early novel takes place in a Peruvian town situated between desert and jungle, which is torn by boredom and lust. Don Anselmo, a stranger in a black coat, builds a brothel on the outskirts of the town while he charms its innocent people, setting in motion a chain reaction with extraordinary consequences. So, full disclosure, I struggled with the translation I had of this book. It wasn't always clear who was speaking. Um, Sometimes there would be pages and pages without paragraph breaks. But in a way, that only increased the hazy spell that this story casts while I was reading it. It was was like this sweaty dream full of these vague, mesmerizing figures. I'd be like, I think I know who this is and, and what they're doing now. And then it would build on you, right? After so many chapters and so many hundreds of pages, you'd, you'd feel like you know where you were, even though if I was asked to recount, what did you just read? I, I couldn't like lay it out to you. I lived it. I, I kind of like breathed it. It's that atmospheric of a story. And so this is probably also why it's my number one pick. It's inherently cinematic. I could feel that in the translated text, but also I would just love to have a filmmaker clarify this tale into a coherent vision on the screen. So who could do that? Well, of course, I had to look into Peruvian directors, right? Who who might be able to know this material best? And I came across Luis Yosa, Mario Vargas's cousin, actually, who made, you're not going to believe this, made 1997's Anaconda. So how about that? <laughs> also, interestingly enough, his niece, Claudia Yosa, another Peruvian filmmaker, nominated for a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar for directing 2009's The Milk of Sorrow. So two very viable candidates there, right? I don't know. Anaconda. Yeah, sure. A lot of fun. I don't know if it's quite what we're looking for here. So I'm going to actually hand this to someone from Argentina, Lucrecia Martel whose work, Adam, we got to know in our new Argentine cinema marathon. And I think her film Zama especially addresses cultural clashes in remote South American regions in a way that would resonate with what I read in The Greenhouse. So I do think she could do something special with the material. Who to play this mysterious, charismatic, tragic Don Anselmo, who's kind of the main character, but not really, but by the end you realize he is. I mean... Javier Bardem in the man's later years, absolutely, I could see inhabiting this. And then you're going to need a younger Anselmo as well. How about Diego Calva, Manny in Babylon? I think he showed a lot of potential in that film that maybe the film didn't fully realize. So give it to those two, have them handle that as a dual part. And I'd love to see this version of The Greenhouse by Mario Vargas Llosa. I love this top five because you guys are providing such inspired, idiosyncratic choices, probably giving our audience a bunch of new discoveries. And I'm here to balance that out with the obviousness. I'm, I'm here to just give you the cliche English major answers. And that's fine because I'm a cliche English major who named his first child Holden 
And my second child, Sophie, has Holden Caulfield apologists in her Twitter bio. So, yeah, I'm saying I want the absolute impossible to happen. My number one is that we get J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye adapted finally. Apparently, Salinger, you know, going back to like 1949, I saw one source today that said that his story, Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut, was adapted into a film called My Foolish Heart. And it was a flop, critically, and it dared to deviate from the novel. And he said, okay, no more of that. You're not going to adapt anymore. Of true, my story. true story. True story. Okay, facts. thank you. True we facts. have the expert here to, to validate that. And ever since then, he didn't grant any permission. And since he passed, his estate has obeyed his wishes and not given the green light. And over the years, Josh, just about anybody who is anybody in Hollywood has thought about it and possibly tried. From the aforementioned Billy Wilder and Samuel Goldwyn, Steven Spielberg has tried multiple times to get the rights. How about some of these names I came across in terms of different people over the course of their careers, decades in Hollywood, in their younger days, obviously, who tried to play Holden Caulfield or wanted to play Holden Caulfield. From Marlon Brando and Nicholson and even Jerry Lewis to John Cusack to Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire. To date, of course, has yet to happen. And as I said, probably will never happen because the estate is hanging on pretty strong. And I went to my Holden Caulfield apologist, my daughter Sophie, with this idea hoping for some validation. She'd tell me how great this idea is. She said, oh, I would never, ever want a catcher adaptation. First of all, because it would suck as a movie. She was texting me and I said, why? She said, well, the whole book is the inner monologue and I don't want to watch the movie and have it just be all narration, which is valid. That would be a challenge in adapting The Catcher in the Rye. The best argument against an adaptation of The Catcher in the Rye, though, is the discourse. I couldn't handle the discourse. I, I could barely handle it right now, and it's not even raging, but you can Google Holden Caulfield, or I'm sorry, you can you can put into the Twitter search, and you'll find some scorching takes about Holden. And I'm prepared. I really do believe I'm prepared for reasonable, rational, negative reactions to Holden Caulfield and to the novel. The self-righteous dismissals I, I just struggle with. I just can't quite abide them. So I don't know if I could handle a world where we we had to all deal with that conversation around an adaptation of The Catcher and the Rye. But if there was ever a director that would help ease all of us into it and maybe make us all somehow come together and sing Kumbaya and talk about how much we love this story... You need a writer and a director who knows how to adapt a classic novel, isn't going to be afraid of it, who knows how to navigate the choppy waters of young adult characters seeking meaning in their lives, reckoning with their identities. Do you know where I'm going, Josh, Kristen, anybody got a guess yet? I mean, well, you already named PTA because that's what I'm hearing, but... Yeah, well, I'm thinking instead of someone who's made movies about characters like Lady Bird... And Little Women, Frances Ha, Mistress America, been a collaborator. Don't throw on all Greta this. Gerwig yes, in Greta, here. Greta Gerwig's going to direct My Catcher in the Rye, and she's going to bring out all the nuance that material deserves. Now, here's where we might need the time capsule a little bit, even though I've, I've now spoiled the question I'm going to ask you, Josh. 
I'm going to pose it to you. The guy I want to play Holden Caulfield, we last saw as Riff in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Mm. How old? Don't overthink it. Just tell me. How old do you think Mike Feist is? Oh, 30. Okay, Kristen, 23. Josh, you're going with 30. Thank you, Kristen. 23 is what I thought the guy had to be. Turns out Mike Feist is freaking 31, which means it would be pretty hard to have him play Holden Caulfield. Then again, just a few years ago, he's playing Riff in West Side Story. And five to six years ago, when he's still in his mid to late 20s, he's playing Connor Murphy in Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. So I'm going to pretend Mike Feist can be my Holden Caulfield where he he has that kind of schoolboy look to him. There's something a little posh about him, but there's also a softness and thinking about that riff character, someone who's fiercely loyal and protective the way I imagine Holden being and emotionally volatile like I imagine Holden being like the book suggests he is. Mike Feist is is my guy. He's my Holden Caulfield. Hey, I've been eager for him to be back on screen. So if this is what it takes, so be it. I love it, though, Kristen. I can see by the look on your face, you are not on board with anything I'm pitching right now. I I hate Cats River. I'm one of those people that despises go. the book. <laughs> I I mean, I, part of it is, yeah, the, the fanboy, like the fandom, you know, the discourse of of people that you know, um, for every for every you know Mark David Chapman, you get you know my, a bunch of film you know book bros uh, that you know tell you like if you ate it, then there's something wrong with you. Um, but the <laughs> other part is, is I just I hate the book. Um, I feel like Holden Caulfield is a big whiner, <laughs> and I find him to be insufferably annoying. Uh, mind you, I have not read the book since college. Uh, maybe time has been kinder. I don't know. Maybe I've become a kinder, gentler soul to it, but I don't want to read it again to find out. Uh, so yeah, I, I I I know that it would definitely be like the literary Snyderverse if it ever became a thing. Oh Lord. The literary <laughs> thinking in those terms. But, but it would be it would be the yeah. Snyderverse for book bros. Oh, yes. No. Well maybe maybe Greta can can help us avoid all of that but i'm just i'm just making a note now to never talk about books again with Kristen. it's a good thing i saved it for number one i didn't lead with the catcher in the rye oh god i yeah it's it's definitely one of those where i just like oh i'm like dude we get it we get we get you don't like chain you know nobody likes chain Stop being a whiner. Phonies either. He doesn't like phoniness, <laughs> Kristen. Your number one, I'm guessing it's not Franny and Zoe. Let's let's hear what your choice is. <laughs> no, I did not go, I did not go literary classic. Uh there's a lot I probably like, you know, I, I probably could have done like a Fitzgerald or something. We don't need more Hemingway adaptations. Uh so yeah, but I'm going with more again, I'm going back to my my detectives. Uh, I'm going back to genre. I'm going back to crime, uh, which is a genre again. Apparently, I'm really into. But this is um, when when somebody asks me the the question, "What is the book you wish was adapted to a film?" I go long. I can see this movie in my head. I can see the sound. I can hear the soundtrack. I can see the characters. I I see it all. All I need is somebody uh, to give me either unlimited funds to put it together. 
or somebody to just like take my ideas, my specific ideas and take them uh, and utilize them. Uh, I'm a big Dennis Lehane fan. Uh, I love pretty much everything he does. I wish I could have put Dennis Lehane adaptations in my book, but they said you have four and uh, just do your own book about Dennis Lehane because, yeah, we can't include all of them. So I had to cut I had to cut all of them. I was very sad. Um, but uh, he technically this book series has already been adapted. Ben Affleck adapted the Kenzie Gennaro series when he did Gone Baby Gone, which is a fine adaptation of that book. It is not the best adaptation of that book, but it's a great, great Ben Affleck. Uh, and I love it so much. But I always say that he adapted the wrong book. He should have done book two, which is Darkness Take My Hand. It's the second book in in the series from 1996. Um, and it's essentially uh, Kenzie, Patrick Kenzie and, and Angela Gennaro, uh, who are the couple that are in Gone Baby Gone. Uh, they're on a case and it culminates with them pretty much tracking down one of the most sadistic, venal, uh, like horrific murderers that they've ever encountered. There's a huge gunfight. Uh, it's just really cinematic. It ends up traumatizing them. That has long-standing ramifications of the rest of the series, um, which includes Gone Baby Gone, which was a big thing that I was kind of like irked by. That like these characters have been through some shit. They should be dealing with a lot of other things. Uh, and I want it. I I think it's a fantastically written book. It's bleak as hell you know it's it's gritty it's traumatic it's sad it's you know it's just it's so engaging in a way that like the best Dennis Lane books are so I, I need them to adapt it I know that at one point they were going to do a tv series on apple tv plus but unfortunately that has been uh put back into turnaround it's not going to happen and it breaks my heart because I just need somebody to adapt the rest of these books in some way. Um, if we were going to adapt it, I'd say give it to Ben Affleck. I think that he did a, a great job with Gone Baby Gone. This is far more, I think, akin to something like The Town, um, you know, in, in terms of just the darkness and the grit and the the tragedy of it. So I think Affleck would, would knock it out of the park. I don't want them to cast the same people because part of my issue with Gone Baby Gone is the casting. Um, so I, I think if you were going to do a new Patrick Kenzie, you need somebody that looks like they like lived in Boston, can take a punch, uh, can like hold their own. Uh, you need John Birdfall. I, I see this as clearly in my head uh, as anything else. Uh, and you get a, a, a Angela Gennaro, you know, Dennis Lehane based it, based the character on his wife. Um, you know, and he considers the character like one of the like most domineering, you know, like intense, great women. Uh, I think she's a one of a fantastic female character. So I think you need like a Jessica Chastain again, someone that can take a punch, <laughs> they can hold their own, can like drink, like slide a beer, like at a bar. Uh, like I, I'm all for this. It can give um, us a, a good accent too. I'm sure Chastain. Yes, they can definitely do the accent work. I need this. I need this mostly because I just keep hearing there's a, a big epic like shootout and and uh, being seen at the end, you know, the culmination of, of everything. And it's there's guns and bullets flying and blood and people are in trauma. And I can just hear Led Zeppelin's babe, I'm going to leave you over the whole thing. I need this. <laughs> I can see scenes. I have a soundtrack. I need these things. Wow. 
and nobody will adapt it. Uh, Apple TV Plus, you've broken my heart. I don't need a TV series. I just need one movie. I just need one movie. She knows the music, the soundtrack. She yeah, no kidding. Has a composer in mind. I love. Yeah, I love yeah. this. I, I mean, the casting direction, though. I imagine just you know the actors walking into the room. They don't have to read any lines. They just have to take a punch, and then, <laughs> depending on how yeah, they can react, you can you fight? You're hired. Yeah, I need I need them to uh, like be be like. Do you know the rules to Fight Club? If you do, then you're in. Um, like. And I think that that's the one thing like that, that Affleck really got with Gone Baby Gone is understanding like we're not dealing with like classy Boston. You know, you're dealing with more of like the lower, the lower, you know, more impoverished version of it. And I think that if anything, like the Kenzie Gennaro that we got in Gone Baby Gone, they used to, they just didn't fit. You know, you put them next to Amy Ryan and it just seemed like they were like not a part of it, even though they try really hard to like integrate them into this this narrative um no i like you need somebody that i believe like has actually like been in the dregs uh you know i need to look more like the bear uh if that's what i'm going those are the top five books we'd like to see adapted into movies now i'm guessing especially with as much as you read Kristen, there's one or two honorable mentions you'd like to throw out josh i'll give you the honors first any other titles Oh man, um, I had a lot of fun with this, and as you can tell, went some down some rabbit holes. So I didn't spend a ton of time on honorable mentions, but the one title I did have was Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Um, would like to see that on the big screen. That's about as far as I went with it, though. Okay, Kristen, any others you want to throw out? I mentioned eighty-eight names, uh, also from Matt Ruff, uh, which is which is a great like video game inspired uh, book. It's a lot of fun. Um, another one that I had was Michael Turner's The Pornographer's Poem that they tried to adapt several years ago. I don't really know how they would do it without making it like an NC-17. Um, but it's a really fascinating exploration of like teenage sexuality. And it has a really downer ending, um, but it's an ending that has stuck with me. So I would love to to see them try to translate that in a way that is not practically porn. I've got a couple nonfiction entries here. I'd love to see an adaptation of any of Mary Carr's memoirs. You go with the Liars Club or Cherry. The actresses I have in mind here, thinking back to these stories, which are more about her teenage years growing up in East Texas, Thomason McKenzie could be very good. I think Sadie Sink might be pretty solid in one of those as well. And I know we do not need more Music biopics, Josh. You certainly don't want them, but I'm, oh, a sucker. Lord. I'm a sucker for all of them. And I wouldn't mind seeing Bob Mears Trouble Boys come to the screen. Let's get the replacements on the big screen. And here's the beauty of it. You know who can play Paul Westerberg or Tommy Stinson, but I'm going to say Paul Westerberg. That's right. Mike Feist would be a great Paul Westerberg. Finally, I mentioned Kafka earlier. Who who doesn't want to see Guillermo del Toro direct an animated version of The Metamorphosis? I think it might even be too grim and too hopeless and bleak for del Toro to bring The Metamorphosis to the screen. You wake up one day, you're an insect, and that's pretty much the whole story. But if anybody could make that really compelling visually, it would be del Toro. You had me at del Toro. I mean, if we're going to throw out books based on musical groups then 
that's a whole other topic. <laughs> it is, right? Well, maybe we'll ha- we'll have you back for that one. And there we'll you go. If we we disagree and about discuss my number one, my long gestating Led Zeppelin biopic okay. uh, that needs to happen. <laughs> that will never happen, but. This was just as much fun as we thought it would be. Congratulations on the book. We remind everyone out there that it is available now wherever you get books. But have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems, that inspired our favorite films? Thank you for coming on. Where can listeners find more of your stuff? I'm all over the internet. Uh, You can find my writing over at therap.com. I'm on social media, uh, particularly Twitter at journeys underscore film and Instagram at Kristen Lopez 88. Uh, I do a podcast. I talk about classic film on my podcast, Tick Wish Business. Uh, you can find that wherever you get podcasts. And we do have a fun Patreon for that at patreon.com slash Tick Biz. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you, Kristen. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com, you can vote in the Elite Eight round of Film Spotting Madness 2023 Best of the 1960s. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. We are listener supported here at Film Spotting. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter and a monthly bonus show. We've got a fun one coming to you soon here before the end of March, Josh. We went back to roughly our graduation date. You are one year older. Than myself mm. and Sam, as I recall. Yeah, but obvious to most listeners, I think. Of course, wiser. A year wiser, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. 30 years ago, though, we're going back to 93, and we're drafting the best movies of that year. If you'd like to hop on the nostalgia train with us and hear that talk, please do join us. Filmspottingfamily.com is where that bonus episode can be found. 90s kids unite. From our archive, speaking of our family members, they have access to all of these episodes. Tying in with this show, back in October of last year, you could hear my conversation with the screenwriter of Bones and All, David Kajanik. Also, a conversation between me and producer and co founder of Film Spotting, Sam Van Halgren. We talked about our favorite recent book to screen adaptations recorded at Iowa City Film Scenes Refocus Film Festival. That's episode 899, not going too far back in the archive, but you can, you can really go a few hundred episodes deep, Josh, and get to some similar top fives to the one we did this week, where we're having some fun, having to use our imagination a little bit, fantasize a little bit. How about the top five movie tattoos we'd like to get in 2014? <laughs> yeah. Who could Interestingly, you've gotten three of your tattoos. I've gotten yes. four. episode 491 we also did the top five superhero director combos we'd like to see oh regrets regrets (laughs) regrets really oh okay we gotta revisit that one episode 668 and you could if you really wanted to go all the way back to june 07 episode 166 sam and i did the top five actors we'd cast in our movie and i have a quote in front of me and I checked this today. It's it's true. This is not a made-up quote. This is not a bit. Sam Van Halgren said, Gail Garcia Bernal is the front man for a Steely Dan cover band. That's just I mean, the beginning of the pitch. I mean, this 
this top five is bearing the lead. I'm not. So, I'm not so concerned about the actors. What are these movies? Are these movies just it, like made up? It doesn't matter. You've, you've yeah. always wanted to make. Well, as you can tell, Sam thought very deeply about what his his movie was going to be about. Wow. Vintage. That's vintage stuff. Yeah. Vintage film spotting. That's filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see the new film from Zach Braff, starring Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman. It's called A Good Person. The Lost King is out. This is a movie starring Sally Hawkins as an amateur historian who becomes obsessed with finding Richard III's remains. It's based on a true story. We heard Kristen earlier in the show reference Stephen Freer yes. still making films. This one was written by Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope, who did Philomena. I saw The Lost King at the Chicago International Film Festival back in October. Cute movie. Good movie. Worth seeing. Coogan and Hawkins both bring some heft to it. And if you're an English buff, if you like Shakespeare, and it is based on a true story, you want to get the details about how they did actually discover <laughs> Richard III's bones, his remains. We probably all remember that being in the news at the time. This is that story. And it's also an interesting take, Josh, on an idea we're all pretty familiar with by now, which is who gets to write history? Who gets to decide what the stories are that are going to become the tales we pass down? All right. So a Kempinar recommendation. Yeah. I recommend The Lost King. In wide release, John Wick, chapter four, before he's the evil villain in My Eyes of the Dragon adaptation. You can see him for it seems the last time as John Wick. And next week we will talk about that new installment of the Wick franchise. We will also get to the final four of Film Spotting Madness. And I'm excited. The Sight and Sound Blind Spots Marathon, the top 100, which got off to such a great start last week with Sancho the Bailiff. That returns with Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavandero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.